everyone. It's 2022 and welcome back to America Mao and the Metaverse with the two Pauls. Paul, great to see you. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and you uh, didn't get inundated with COVID like it seems like two-thirds of the population has. But there's a lot to talk about. Obviously, when we plan our talks, we talk about things we want to sort of go through in depth. But how do we not start with Omicron and where we are with all of that? And, you know, again, these conversations, it's hard for them not to be turning political in terms of where we are. But uh, the way, you know, as we speak, a million new cases of Omicron in the United States, not many people getting that sick from it. Thoughts on that? Well, okay, so I just finished a great book called The Great Influenza. That's come oh. by John Perry. Magisterial work. I think on page 372, he really nails it because I don't think there's anybody in the world who did a more in-depth research on every element of the, the Spanish flu in the United States than him in terms of the economic, the epidemiological, the medical, the bacterial, the viral, the military, and so forth. Now, this originated in a military base in Kansas by two guys who went from a small area called Shelby County. They went to Camp Funston. By March, there was like 1,200 cases in this camp, and the troops were transferred to Chicago. They were transferred to New York, and they were transferred to New Orleans off to the races, massive, highly deadly outbreak first, very similar to what we had in America in March to July. Then it dies down in the summertime, and then it comes back with a terrible vengeance in the end of the first year, which is what happened in America in 2020. And then what happens, and what's so fascinating, and the point that Barry makes, is that in the history of pandemics, there's always going to be a mean reverting element of a virus. And so what happens is that each, the virus gets smarter. And by smarter, the virus wants to, by the way, stay in a living host. <laughs> a dead host is no good to a virus. Exactly. So you want to be a host in, in, a, in a body without killing your host, right? And, and so what happens is viruses evolve and they, they make obsolete the previous variants, right? They overtake the previous variants. And so they create their own immunity and they get weaker. That is the nature of viruses or else the human species would be extinct tens of thousands of years ago. As human beings on earth, we are inundated by pandemics. Do you know how many pandemics there were in the 20th century? Well, it depends on how is one defining that. I mean, was Ebola was never really a pandemic. Yes, it is. Ebola was a pandemic. Yeah, sure. AIDS was a pandemic, and AIDS still is a pandemic. Right. Polio, typhoid, uh, you know, on and on. There were 29, including two bubonic plague outbreaks in San Francisco in the early 20th century. So, you know, humans would have been wiped out many, many, many tens of thousands of years ago if people think that this thing keeps on killing. It doesn't. That's the nature of the beast. I think we are doing exactly the way that they behave. They get weaker and mellower, but at first they are deadly and virulent. And right now, Omicron is so weak as to be virtually a light flu. And by the way, it's bronchial. It goes into your bronchial tubes. It doesn't even go into your lungs. They can live in your bronchial tubes, right? And you can live, right? So this is what happened exactly in the Spanish flu in 1919. It fizzled out. And there was 1.3 billion people in the world, by the way, you know, not a small amount. And this thing had terrible, terrible, deadly consequences. The Spanish flu had more had elements of the bubonic plague because people were bleeding out of their eyes, they were bleeding out of their noses, they were bleeding out of their ears. 
And the soldiers were just getting creamed, especially in those very tightly packed ships going over to Brest to offload, to go fight in the trenches. And so I'm going to say that after reading that book line by line and just magisterial, spectacular research, I think we're at a point now where this is fizzling out. And so I'm going to say Omicron is red herring. I'm going to go through many of these, Paul, and I'm going to tell you a lot of the things everybody's talking about as the things I, you know, make me keep me awake at night are red herrings and are things we can check off that. There are much more important things to keep us up at night. Omicron is one of them that we don't need to, you know. Well, let's talk about that in a second, mate, about the things that are overrated in terms of risk going into the the new year. But, you know, obviously we talked about the virus evolving. Is policy evolving? Because I see policy evolving. You know, I'm in the UK right now, and I see policy no, it's evolving going, here. Going I see policy evolving in the US. It ain't evolving in Asia. I, I know. I had to cancel my trip to London three weeks ago because I would have had to do a two-day quarantine for a three-day trip. And if I would have tested positive, I would have um, been blocked from re-entering uh, Spain, Paul. Yep. And then guess what happens? I was going to have dinner with my three. I have two interns in London and a previous intern, and we were all going to get together and have dinner and then go see Handel's Messiah. And two of the three interns got COVID that day. <laughs> so I would have been going and bringing COVID to my clients the next day. And so it was just like, thank God I didn't go and I canceled my trip. I feel bad. My clients understood it. They were like, okay, this is tough, but we understand. No, it's completely backwards. And I think Singapore has banned all incoming flights until the end of January. I think that is just very demoralizing. You know, you've got uh, this uh, unlivable. Hong Kong's unlivable. I think there's going to be a mass exodus after Chinese New Year where people get their bonuses. I think people are going to quit in en masse in droves. I think the same in Singapore. I think that even Dr. Wen, uh, this wonderful lady who's a CNN uh, contributor from Baltimore, she used to be the head of the Baltimore like Department of Health. Great. And she's like, calm down. See, the former minister of health, all of Israel, like Israel, one of the most advanced in the world, if not the most advanced in the world, in terms of aggressive moves to arrest uh, the virus with like almost the highest uh, proportion of people on their fourth shot in the world, said, get Omicron, go ahead and get it. <laughs> You're going to get it anyways. We've got, we, we got to stop this. And so he may be seen as a quack right now, but maybe in six months, it looks like, um, you know, he might be right. I have taken that book as, you know, something as one of the best books I've ever read on the epidemiology and the culture and history viruses. And I'm going to say Omicron is behaving exactly like viruses have in the past. They start extremely virulent and deadly. You never want to get a virus at the beginning. You always want to get it at the end when they have treatments and vaccines and and they understand it and so forth. But, you know, the the unvaccinated, I still am trying to keep faith in human nature. I I just think the unvaccinated people are being terribly irresponsible um, and are you know, unvaccinated populations are a petri dish for new variants. And so there's always, there's that. But I'm going to say that Omicron's a red herring. Let's go to the next couple of items that you and I were throwing around, which I I want to show to you. I think they're red herrings. I'll give you a broad one. Geopolitics is a red herring. I've been skeptical about, you know, how much war, global terrorism, these sort of issues, not financial, but, you know, true geopolitical stress points how much they actually affect markets. And when we sat there last year and saw an Iranian drone bomb a Saudi oil field and the (laughs) price of oil didn't move, 
That, my friend, was the death of geopolitics as a driver of asset returns, right there. And again, look, it'll affect things for, you'll have movements for a day or so, but at the end of the day, something that structurally alters the current trajectory of markets, it's very rare. You look at the greatest red herring of the lot, Paul, was the US-China trade dispute. It didn't influence markets to the extent that people thought it did. The great corrections that we had in 2018 and 2019 were all driven by the Federal Reserve. Right? They weren't driven by they weren't driven by the trade dispute, or they weren't driven by you know. And we sit down and we'll hear Russia, Ukraine will get thrown around, Turkey will get thrown around, Taiwan will get thrown around. And at the end of the day, it had you know name the last outside of 9/11, right? The London bus bombings. You know, the FTSE finished up that day. And we can go through a slew of examples where these so-called shock events, which should be spiking oil prices and gold prices and safe haven and people funneling into safe haven assets, just hasn't happened. I think that's right. I agree with you. And especially in the area of Russia and Ukraine, you know, I commissioned a piece from somebody who's an expert on Ukrainian politics who is himself, God forbid, Ukrainian. Neil Ferguson did a piece in the FT. I think I sent you that, Paul, and it was yeah, there. War is coming any minute now. But I don't want to give away my commission piece for my clients, but I mean, generally speaking, the, the view that my writer's going to take is basically that, hey, come on, the war has been going on for years, and the war is twofold. It is a cyber attack. It is a, um, uh, uh, active measures to undermine uh, morale in countries by uh, contaminating the politics. And by the way, Russia did that very well in the U.S. over the last four years. It's done that very well in the Ukraine. It has infected you know, so much of the Ukraine with damaging you know, viruses in their banking system, in their infrastructure system, and so forth. Uh, you know, uh, Ukraine's been, been pummeled with that. And there's so much internal cyber warfare in terms of the politics that people are wondering, you know, what is the true from the false? You know, and, and when everybody wonders what, what is the true from the false, nobody can trust anything and certainly not the politicians. And therefore, there's no truth. And, and when there's no truth, you get a dispirited, abjectly disinterested population that you can just tweak and manipulate and cow. And, and that's what Russia loves. And that's what Russia has done very well in the last you know, 25 years internally. I am sitting here in Spain, however, and one thing that is geopolitical is that because of Russia's behavior, gas prices are have exploded in Spain. So my gas bill for December was double November. That's a big hit to a lot of people in Spain, and there's a lot of tremendous bitching right now that Russia's uh, hanky-panky with gas prices is causing a really big hit in consumer pocketbooks in Europe. Yeah, and if I put my climate hat on for a second, Paul, I mean, it's if when you have the combination of an over-reliance on Russian gas and, you know, the intermittent use of renewables, which are still, you know, the European grid is, and UK grids are still very reliant on coal and gas as backup plans when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, right, that you're going to have these, as the energy transition goes on, particularly as we are defunding coal and oil and gas and the like, and, and having this ever-reliance on, on renewables, the transition to go from A and B, A to B, when you're so reliant on that gas pipeline, right, on the two gas pipelines from Russia, gas volatility, energy volatility is going to be here to stay. And that gas bill that doubled for you in, from November to December is probably going to be a frequent occurrence over the course of the next decade. 
Well, and then it's, it's just going to end up being another hit to sovereign governments who are going to have to subsidize it to keep people from, uh, you know, burning down the Ministry of um, Energy Building because people are really furious. So apparently the, today the government announced it was going to collapse or cut VAT on energy down to close to zero. They're going to have no choice. So they're going to have a big hit to their income because they, they can't keep that VAT at 21%. And again, the energy transition, we all know how essential it is deep down, except none of us want to pay for it, right? And, uh, you know, for example, we in the UK, for you know, we need to get rid of gas boilers that heat the vast majority of homes outside of London, uh, well, actually, in the, and in London as well. The trouble is a gas boiler keeps your bathroom on a, on a February morning at 72 degrees. The electric pump, which will cost you $18,000 to replace your gas boiler, isn't going to work as well. If you're a 65-year-old, a 65-year-old who has been very comfortable with their gas boiler for a very, very long time, your propensity to want to switch over to something which is going to help the planet, there's going to be hesitancy there. Yep. No, I hear you. I hear you. So but another over- overstated risk is, for me, inflation, or more to the point, the, the risk of a draconian central bank response to that inflation, I think, is the number one overblown risk for 2022. I think that the Federal Reserve has told you, the ECB has told you, the Bank of Japan and China have told you that they are very tolerant of inflation and do believe that what we have seen over the course of the last 12 months in particular is transitory. They don't believe the sticky arguments. They are card-carrying demographic and tech disinflationists. And as a result, you know we're going to have elevated inflation for at least the next probably three quarters. But the central bank response to that inflation is going to be muted. And for me, that creates a, a pretty darn good environment for, for risky assets. Nothing, Not repeating anything like the returns we had in the last two years, which were simply remarkable. A Federal Reserve that's going to be raising rates by 50 to 75 basis points this year does nothing to take the steam out of a very rambunctious equity market. Yeah, and so I would add to that, and I agree. I think that also they have an argument that they talk about privately that they will never talk about publicly, which is this little dirty secret, a small amount total global debt, which is combined government plus whatever state, provincial, plus local, plus private, plus non-bank debt has gone from in, in the last year and a half, according to the BIS new report, I mean, these are amazing numbers, has gone from 350 to $400 trillion. Now, the entire global GDP is, I think, 65, or let's call it even 75. Let's just, let, let's say it's 80, right? Yeah. Let's call it 80. Oh, that's only 5X, you know, uh, global GDP. If I'm, you know, making $100,000 a year and I have debt of $500,000 a year and I have all my expenses and, and so forth, it's going to take me a very, very long time to pay off that debt. And so the, the dirty secret here is that the only way out of this mess, the only way out is inflation. And so I think this is a stealth, confidential and necessary, by the way, response to this massive level of debt, which is going to be letting negative interest rates rip. And so, you know, I was talking to a client about this back in November, and he made a very good point. He said that right now we are looking at negative rates of like minus five. We're looking at nominal rates of like one, inflation of six, right? Five, let's say it's five. We still have you know, minus four negative rates. He said, how many 25 basis point hikes 
it, do we need to get in order to get to four, right? To, to make the average real interest rate something close to like even like minus one. He said, you know, we're going to need like 12 rate hikes just to get back to normal. And that is not going to happen. Right. But Paul, I, I don't, I'd make two arguments to get that. And look, what you said factually correct. But I would say the prospect of inflation staying at six, it for me is incredibly slim, right? And I do think that we, COVID obviously was an extraordinary period for global markets in a slew of different ways. But at the end of the day, we've had four decades of disinflation um, leading up to the point where the pandemic was the only thing that that created some of the highest inflations that we've seen really in, well, certainly in three decades. The problem I have with those arguments about negative rates being at 4% is that that takes an inflation rate at a single point in time, where I would argue that the, the previous decade of slower growth around the world, lower inflation around the world, deterioration in across the, the entirety of the Western world, Japan and China, that that will continue to be the norm. And, and what I think will happen is that we will return to a slower growth, lower inflation period over time. The supply chain disruption that was caused because of you know, COVID throwing the sand in the gears of the global economy, eventually that'll get cleaned out. And I think eventually what we do is return to that low growth, low inflation, poor demographic tech disinflation world that has been prevalent really since the financial crisis. I have clients who, are, who have said this argument, uh, you know, we've all memorized it. The problem is, I just think the CPI is a big fat lie because, you know, the CPI has always been that prices accept the bad stuff. Look at what anybody in any like half person who can add two and two knows that if you're looking for rent in any major city in the world, rents are unaffordable. If you're looking to buy a house, just about any major city in the world, housing is unaffordable to, to buy as a house. Look at food prices. Food prices are up 20% in one year. Don't bullshit me that inflation is 5%, right? That is total nonsense. And so you look at asset prices, look at car prices, look at, look at what's happening to wages, look at what we see with white goods. All of these white goods are up 15 20%. So mm -hmm. don't sit there and tell me that inflation is 4%. It's more like 10 And I don't know what it takes to have some kind of intermediate part of the cycle to kick in with dramatically lower prices. I just look at my gas bill, just doubled. Utilities is 100% month on month, right? So mm -hmm. annualize that one, right? That's not 2.5%. So I just think that the central banks are just talking a big load of rubbish and they know they have to because there is no other way out except to gun it and to have quantitative easing, push negative rates to very high negative levels in order to encourage asset purchases with leverage, by the way, with leverage, mm -hmm. which through an under leveraged banking system that is still functioning very well, thank you. My take from as a bank analyst for you know, 15 years, I would say that when you have a functioning credit system and high wages, that is inflation. Right when you have a broken credit system, no wage growth. That's deflation. That's Japan and has deflation because the credit system is broken. You had that effectively for ten years in the United States between 2010 and 2020. You had that. You had no, 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 no. You had, you had a dysfunctional banking system and declining real wages. That's not true. Credit growth started occurring in 2016. You are right. From 2008 to 2015. 
dreadful. But rates were zero, right? And then right. rates started going up correctly in 2016 as the credit systems engine started getting going. And JP Morgan and Citibank started growing their balance sheet or you know, that they were turning their cash into a risk assets. And that was 2016. And that really gave you a rip in equity prices, as it should. Yep. But right now, we still have the banking system in America very healthy. It's still going great. And wage growth is really getting going. And so this can give you a really good, solid whack with prices. And Do you so, think the banking system in the United States is healthy, though, Matt, or, this, or the majority of the debt, the debt is, is non-bank shadow bank type? Yeah, exactly. So the majority of the debt is government debt. Even I've looked very closely at like Apollo and Schwartzman's organization, Blackstone. So they may be hiding their debt. I don't think there is a lot of debt built up in the private equity world. I think there was a lot of debt built in equity margin debt. And the unwind of the margin debt in the equity markets, that is a big concern. No one's talking about that. That's a 2022 concern. What levels of the margin debt in the equity market have been unwound? Because a lot of that debt, that margin debt in the equity market goes to the part of the NASDAQ that's beneath the top five companies keeping the NASDAQ afloat. Mm. That element of the NASDAQ is down 25% year on year. So after talking about overstated risk, is that your big risk for 2022? I think that's one of the central risks is how much of the margin debt unwind is that started in the middle of November has been unwound. And we can just look at Robinhood. Stock price was down 50% in December. Right. Yeah. And everybody had Robinhood. You, oh, you had to own Robinhood. And, you know, we had a very aggressive sell on that. And there were a lot of you know, questions about, you know, why are you writing this kind of research? But, you know, Robinhood is like a radioactive zone for all the same stocks, right, owned by all the same people who have an average of two years experience in equity markets with margin debt. Oh, gee, what can go wrong? You know, oh, huh, I wonder. Because you and I saw that in the 90s in Asia, Paul. When people were doing, they didn't understand that markets go down as well as up. And a lot of you, a lot of the people that you and I know that are friends got cleaned out and they were very experienced you know, capital markets people. And so that I think is, is one of the serious risks here is, is the Fed going to blink and relent and say, you know, the peak of the margin debt was like one trillion in November. And that number was 600 billion in January. That number went from 600 billion to one trillion right? That was almost a doubling in one year. And I think the Fed, my guess, I don't know, my guess would be, I think the Fed would like that number to go back down to 600. Let's get out of here on this one. Is there any risk in crypto, any systemic potential systemic? I don't think there is a systemic risk in, in crypto myself. I don't see the leverage in, in crypto. But um, is that, again, is crypto an over, one of the overstated risks in terms of its... I was doing a lot of poking around in, during Christmas time and just asking people and, and asking all my contacts to get out there and sort of see what's going on. I think there's probably a lot of margin debt in crypto. And some of it was going to be very high rates. And some of it, there were a lot of offers all over the world for, you know, three to one, five to one, 10 to one leverage levels. In major coins, in like in Ether and, and Bitcoin primarily. Correct, correct. So, so we need to watch that and try to get numbers that are going to give us a handle on where we are with how much of the leverage has been burned off. Because you've seen a lot of stocks, I mean, you know, 
uh, guys, you can go on and on. I mean, just look at look at Ark, right? Ark is down by half. Uh, yep. Robin Hood down, Marquetta, all of these darling stocks have just been creamed. Uh, Compass was another, you know, prop tech darling. And everybody loved it. And it's, it's down 60%. And so a lot of these guys look horrible. We could get a bounce. But when you look at some of the technicals on some of this, it just looks like you had some ghastly death crosses forming on a lot of these stocks, right? Where, where the moving averages are, are breaking yep. down. And so I, I'm, I'm going to um, say that this is probably not over. So, you know, I, I have launched a, a metaverse portfolio. Luckily, it has you know, several of the large caps in it. And the large caps, because of their weight in the index we created, show you know, not a lot of damage. But there's other ones like PayPal's down quite a lot last year. PayPal was a darling, everybody. And I think that there was probably a lot of leverage, margin debt in PayPal. Oh, this stock can't go down. You know, it's, it's, you and I have heard this a hundred times, right? Yeah. And so some of these darlings have been forced liquidation as the stock price goes down, there's more margin calls, and then the stock price go down, and then there's more margin calls. And, and you and I know that this can become a cascading event until and unless central banks or the securities regulators say, you know what? We're going to call a timeout here and we're going to relax some rules on margin debt funding and so forth and so on. And it's going to send a signal to the market that everybody better clean up their act and, and sort themselves out. And we're going to try to stabilize this. And, and Paul, when you put this in the context of US 10 year yields have gone from 150 to 166 in the first two trading days of the uh, trading days, as we speak, the NASDAQ is down, no, not too bad, down about one cents, but down about 1.2%, which is nothing in the greatest scheme of things. You wouldn't want US 10-year bonds to go and make a, a new high for the cycle, which is above 175. That margin debt story plus the impact on growth equity is not a pretty, potentially not a pretty thing for uh, you know, for the bottom 95 stocks in the NASDAQ 100. I think the gas prices around the world are pushing, are pushing this. I think the gas prices are doing that to the 10-year. I Watch the two-year, though. The two-year yep. is what bought. Two years, but it, and, and that's where you have a lot of a pressure to liquidate in order to get liquidity, right? When you're dealing with a margin debt problem, people are scrambling on the short end to get liquidity and try to, you know, scramble around to repay some of this debt. And so, you know, the two year has been, the yield has been exploding up. So that's the one that you pay attention to. The short term, three months out to two years is where a lot of people are going to get liquidity. Well, yeah, four hikes priced into 2022 in the uh, US yield curve is, uh, put it this way, any more than that, and we've got a problem. Uh, how many hikes? Four, just under four. I don't even think four is going to happen. No, I don't either. I, I've got three as my base case. So, and three equities can do fine in, in a world of three rate hikes in the US. So. Yeah, I was reading quite a bit of some good stuff. I, I think that the people who really look at profits, you know, I, I, I there's one fund, I, I, I know the guy's extremely good, and he's driven by corporate profits. And he thinks that, that you know, profits for the first half of the year, at least, are going to surprise on the upside. And so, you know, profits are in good stead. Rates are probably going to remain fairly stable, as you said. Negative rates are going to remain quite negative. You know, I think that the global, you know, whatever you want to call it, the global security issues are, are like I said, I agree with you very much, a red herring. I worry about what Putin's doing with gas prices and what Europe is, is going to have to do to try to get him to um, calm down on that. But uh, yeah, the margin debt is a problem directly for the equity market. And I think there are a lot of people out there, as you and I know from the past, Paul, there's a period of maybe three to six months where people can live in, in delusional cuckoo land with a lot of booze. 
and other substances in order to deny the reality of what's happened to them and their portfolios. And then the chickens come home to roost and the guy says, you know what, if you don't pay up tomorrow, everything's going to be liquidated and you're going to be broke and I'll see you in court. I just think we're not, it doesn't feel like we're finished in this liquidation of margin debt. That's what bothers me. No, right I think it's fair. And I think a catalyst is, is obviously the catalyst is high yields. And I think, you know, Again, you need to, I, these things, as you know, need to have a, a catalyzing moment to them. And I think, you know, again, I'm certainly not a believer in significantly higher yields or, a, or the Fed being overly aggressive, but uh, the bond vigilantes can have their, can have their, uh, have their moment in the sun. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, come on. I mean, I, I'm so tired of this. I mean, I understand that central bank balance sheets, I understand bank balance sheets. If you shrink the Fed balance sheet, by 5%, uh, the world will have a global depression. And the Federal Reserve knows this, for God's sake. And so the central bank's balance sheet has done nothing but grow since 2008. Well, remember, Paul, the Fed's balance sheet has gone down marginally between 2014 and 2016, but the Fed has never sold a bond. That's tough to mature, but the Federal Reserve will never sell a bond because there's no way that they can control that narrative. It can stop buying bonds for a period, and that's okay, right? But in terms of significant shrinkage of the balance sheet, there will be an organic shrinking because of maturities. Mark my words, they will never sell a bond. Well, yeah, there was a slight reduction, but in terms of the bond holdings of the Federal Reserve, that did not go down, and it can't go down. So the Fed is caught in a world where if it tries to sell its own inventory, it will wipe out its capital in about an hour. And it'll cause a real, uh, you know, pro- very problematic uh, results in the, in, the, in the financial markets. And so what happened? Know, I had a very devastating conversation with a guy who was the IMF liaison to central banks about 10 years ago with one of my dear friends from Capital Research and lovely, lovely guy, very, very sharp banks guy. His name happened to be Paul as well. I said, Paul, can you do me a favor? Can you tell me three central banks that actually got out of quantitative easing, that exited quantitative easing? And he said, uh, well, yeah, there are three. I can give you three. Nicaragua, Lebanon, and the Philippines. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not a very, like, that doesn't give me a lot of, like, really good no. feeling on the inside of these central banks that have actually escaped it. Now, in Japan, we're already up to 200% of GDP. Japan knows it cannot escape quantitative easing because the very act of shrinking the balance sheet, specifically shrinking the the government debt holdings of the balance sheet, there's a lot of other mechanisms that the Fed uses to create illusions of shrinkage. But but fundamentally, the the liability side of balance sheet, the federal debt, has to keep rising or else it, it will wipe out its own capital. And then what happens, like in the Philippines in 1991, 92, when I was there working at Credit Suisse, I was involved in the Philippines a lot. Right. You, when you try to get out of that, you have a really bad inflation problem and then you, you, your bonds yields explode anyway, anyway. And what do you have to do? You have to go to Congress and get a bailout. And guess what happens when you go to Congress to get a bailout? Congress owns you and you lose your autonomy. Right. And so you got to be very careful here. And, and I think the Federal Reserve is doing a very good job here on this give and take. But come on, don't kid me for a second that you know the Federal Reserve is going to shrink its bond ownership. This is absurd and nonsense. Not it's not the way it works. Not the way it works. Got it. Mate, good to see you. It's good to have you back. By the way, time to take down your Christmas tree, even though it is lovely. Two things. 
Number one risk on policy side, if the Congress gets its act together and decides to break the five stocks that are the best performing stocks in the world and have held up the entire world, every one of them is a monopoly. Yep. And if Congress wants to, they can break up the monopolies. That's the number one risk in the world. And guess what's not going to happen? Congress Man. is not going to break monopolies. <laughs> number two, agitating labor. If labor wakes up and starts to really agitate like we had in the teens and the 20s after the, the mercantile, you know, uh, the mercantilist uh, policies of America that led to this um, Gilded age, like what we have right now, we're in trouble. But I don't think labor is going to wake up. I'm not so certain about that. Look at the Kellogg strike. Look at the um, Amazon strike. They were both duds. They were. Mate, have a, have a fantastic week. We'll do this again next week, and we'll uh, talk to you shortly. 